Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So if you look at your program, it says, I'm going to speak, but actually you got a better one today. It's my better half. So would you welcome Wendy as she comes to speak today? Thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning. Today is Palm Sunday. We enter Holy Week today. So in Sunday school, um, your kids are getting palm branches. It's a tangible reminder of how Jesus was worshipped by the crowds the day that he rode into Jerusalem. During Jesus' time, the palms were used for celebrating because palms are the evergreen of the desert. They keep their leaves when everything else withers and dies. Palm branches symbolize life, joy, and victory over a death. So on Palm Sunday, the crowds used them to proclaim that Jesus was king, even though we know now that their adoration quickly flipped just days later. But I tell you this reminder, just because it's a beautiful reminder, but also to prepare you of what I assume is going to happen on Palm Sunday so many years ago that while their children were waiting in the crowds for Jesus, they would have probably been waving those palms in worship for sure. But they also probably used those palms for an epic sword battle, giving an irritating tickle and probably more likely to use it to smack a sibling. So just be prepared as you go home today, okay? But, um, but even though it's Palm Sunday um, today, we're going to switch it up and we're going to actually jump ahead to the end of Holy Week to Jesus after the resurrection. Because we can do that. But this is our final message in our Lenten series, The Questions of Jesus. Based upon the fact that in the New Testament, it reveals that Jesus is about ten times more likely to ask a question than he is to give an answer. So Jesus asks questions because they build conversations, and conversations build relationships. So the question that Jesus asks that we want to hone in on today is, whom do you seek? This question runs through the Gospel of John like a light red thread. And it isn't overwhelming at first, and it's easy to overlook. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. So we're going to look at how this question, or a variation of it, is asked by Jesus three times in the book of John. And the thread starts running with the very first words that Jesus spoke in John's gospel. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him and and say this, and they follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them and following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? So Jesus varies this question to start with a what rather than a whom. But in Greek, what are you seeking is almost exactly the same question as whom. So to these curious men about who Jesus was, he asked, What are you seeking? What are you searching for in life? Tell me, what do you think about this statement? Do you think it's true? What we seek reveals who we are. I was thinking about that statement, and I looked at how I spent my time this last week, and I asked myself this question that Jesus asked, what am I seeking? You know, how do I spend my time? Does it say a lot about what I want in life? Because just about everything we do is for some purpose, whether we realize it or not. You know, maybe it's money, sex, power, success, you know, which eventually will leave us dissatisfied even if we get what we want. But there's other things that we pursue. That could be a little bit more substantial, like um, justice or beauty or a sense of home or identity or meaning or purpose. So when Jesus asks us, what are you seeking? He is wanting to help us to see more clearly where the arrow of our life is pointing. What direction are we going? 
So as I was thinking about the things that I seek, I was reminded how I can spend time seeking things that don't really matter. About nine years ago, I was decorating our house and I was trying to pull together our master bedroom. And I had this bedspread that I just don't like, um, but I don't want to spend the money for a new one, right? So, and then I was trying to figure out how can I pull this room together with the drapes and the headboard, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I thought if I could find the perfect throw blanket, I could pull it together. So I went on this search for a perfect throw blanket. It had to be just the right hue, the size, the texture, you know, and price. And I searched online and I went to 14 different stores to find this throw blanket. I finally found it. But then I didn't want to put it on my bed because I have a dog. And I just knew that if I left, this dog would find that blanket and would ruin it. So I put this holy grail of a blanket, okay, in a drawer. And it sat there for the last nine years. And now, after all that work, I mean, I don't even like the color anymore. So anyway, it's ridiculous. I was seeking after what, you know. Um, But don't judge me because I know you've done something similar. Maybe with a car. But anyway. So when Jesus asks, what are you seeking... We can see this question throughout the, the whole arc of the book of John. And he takes it from what are you seeking to whom are you seeking? Because in the end, what we're really looking for, what we really need, it's not an object, it's not an idea. We're not looking for a what, we're looking for a who. Jesus is the one in whom all of our desires, our longings are going to be fully met. But I get it, because it sounds ethereal and sometimes even pious when we say, well, Jesus is all I seek, he's all I want. And I believe that most of us want God more, but we just don't know how to get to that place. Because we have longings for peace and joy, contentment, and it's just so easy to get off track. And we find other ways than Jesus to meet those desires. So let's see how Jesus navigated conversations to get to the core of our longings. The second time that Jesus asked, whom are you seeking? It's to the one who betrayed him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as the soldiers and Judas approached with their lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest him, he, Jesus, asked them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, Well, I am he. Then Judas and all of the soldiers stepped back and fell to the ground. So we see that Jesus doesn't just ask this question to the curious or to those who follow him. He asks this question to those who find him offensive, who find him a nuisance or someone to be deposed and eliminated jesus pointedly asked to those who prefer darkness to light whom do you seek and it's interesting to me that earlier that night jesus washed the disciples feet and he he, including judas's feet right he did it as a sign of his love and a willingness to sacrifice for them even when he knew that judas was going to betray him Like, if I knew that one of my closest friends was going to betray me, knowing that I was going to be tortured and most likely killed for just a little bit of money, I I don't think I would be responding like Jesus. In fact, I I was thinking about this message, obviously, during the night, because I woke up with a dream, and in the dream, somebody that had hurt me in the past or or whatever, and um, she was in the dream, and then she started being condescending to me, and then I woke up right as I was about ready to tell her off, you know? Like, "Mm." Anyway, I know I have issues, okay? Um, So... And I, but I was thinking, like, what would it be like to, for Jesus to, to clean the feet of somebody he knew that he loved and was going to betray him? You know, I, I mean, I know I look a little bit like a church lady, but I do know that if I had met Judas, I probably would have, I don't know, I would have probably had some kind of expletive and a hand gesture. I'm really sad about this. Um, anyway, so I've got to get through it. Okay, so, but at a, at a d- recent discipleship training meeting that we had at Quest, the concept of suffering was discussed. And during that time, my brain quickly jumped to this, to this exact exchange that Judas and Jesus had. 
And the training helped me expand my view of what suffering is and how it relates to sin. Jesus has such incredible great compassion toward each and every one of us because he understands sin destructiveness. Regardless of whether it's sin that just permeates our world or whether we choose sin by our own choices, God knows that sin causes us to experience suffering. And so when we sin, God is not like, oh, I told you not to do that. So you're just going to have to deal with it, you know, or you're just experiencing your just reward, sweetheart. Instead, Jesus has such compassion for suffering that he experienced when it's sin, even by our own hand. We see this in Jesus's attitude toward Judas while he's serving him, washing the filth off his feet. Jesus's attitude was love and mercy, not in spite of, but because Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Because Jesus knew that the sin that Judas had chosen in his heart to commit, he, he knew that it was going to cost Judas everything. And when we choose to sin, Jesus knows what it's going to cost us. And it's in that love that, that Jesus washes Judas' feet and he, and he washes ours. Jesus' attitude toward Judas was not about self-protection. His eyes did not reveal disdain or rebuke, but compassion. So I believe that when Jesus asked this question in the garden to Judas, his eyes continued to reflect that compassion. Whom do you seek? Judas, what are you really seeking? What are you longing for? Is it power? Is it justice? What you are about to do, is that going to give it to you? Jesus' direct and penetrating question, whom do you seek, goes to the core of the heart. And we see that Judas and the guards fall to the ground. Jesus is betrayed, but in reality, Jesus is not so much betrayed as he allows himself to be betrayed, to be handed over. Because this Lamb of God, he gave himself into the hands of those who thought that what they were seeking was so much better than what Jesus could give, so much better than who Jesus was. The third time that Jesus utters, whom are you seeking, it's to Mary Magdalene. And as we go into a little bit more depth about Mary, I want you to revisit that story. Try to envision yourself in that scene, and it folds, particularly on the first Easter morning. It's a conversation that Jesus and Mary have in the garden, just outside the tomb. So we're going to read that scripture all in entirety in, in its length, but then we're going to unpack it a little bit more. So now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as they yet did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But when Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. 
Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. When Jesus had first met Mary, he had cast seven demons from her, and she became a faithful follower. She was one of the few people that had witnessed it all. The trial before Pilate, the crowning with the thorns, the road to the cross, and the crucifixion. And just when she thought that Jesus' ministry was gaining traction, just when she thought that the people were rallying to Jesus' message of grace, just when she thought that his entry into Jerusalem would bring a new age of faith and hope and love, Jesus was betrayed, he was crucified, died, and was buried. It was over. The ministry, the mission, it was all finished. And on Sunday, we see Mary coming to the tomb in the night before the sun rose, and it echoed the darkness of the night of her soul. Because how could she sleep when the one that who had welcomed her and loved her as she had never been loved before, when, when he was dead and buried? And when she arrived, Mary saw in the moonlight that the stone had been removed from the tomb, and her sorrow now turned to horror. Because in that despair, she ran to the disciples to announce to them what she had discovered. Peter and John didn't delay. They ran to the tomb. John arrived at the tomb first, but waited for Peter to go let him go back into the tomb first. Peter saw the linen cloth and the burial cloth. He saw the head cloth was folded, but there was no body. Why is there that fact about burial cloths being folded in the scripture? Now, maybe it was because it addressed the fear that Mary had and others had that somebody had stolen Jesus' body. But then they had to think, like, what grave robber is going to take the time to steal a body and then fold up a cloth so carefully? I don't know. That doesn't make sense, right? But I also think that if Jesus can rise from the dead and still take the time to straighten up his room... Those living in our households should do the same, right? Yeah, okay, all right. So, but it's, it's really interesting to see the differences between Peter's reaction and John's because they both saw the same thing. Why did Peter come to the tomb and see only some cloth folded up and rolled up? Yet John saw the same thing, but he believed. Although not fully understanding, John believed that Jesus had broken the chains of sin and death and he was living. Maybe it was because that Peter had come to the tomb and he was in confusion and in guilt because he had just denied knowing Jesus and it had been too late for him to say that he was sorry. Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb after Peter and John had gone back to their homes and she was crying and two angels appeared and asked her, why are you weeping? We're talking two angels in white, right? She is so blinded by her grief that she's completely unaffected by the appearance of angels. I mean, some, that would usually land most of us on our knees, I would think. But then comes another that asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? Mary doesn't realize it, but it's Jesus here now asking her this question, and he meets her in her darkest hour. Why are you weeping, says the one who comforts those who grieve and those who are lonely and afraid. Mary explained that she believed that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. Then this one Mary that thought that he was just a gardener he asked the question he recently asked of Judas. Whom are you seeking? Well, then Mary repeats herself. Well, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And doesn't the irony of that just hit you? I mean, she's looking for Jesus, and he's right there in front of her. But she doesn't recognize him because she is seeking someone who is dead. And it makes you think, like, how often do we not recognize that Jesus is alive and he is right in front of us? So how does Jesus reveal himself to her? Ta-da, you know, 
This is God's resurrected son from the dead. It's an event that's unparalleled in history. It's an event that is going to change history itself. It's a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, life and death, and Jesus wins it all for every single one of us. But instead of thunder and lightning to announce his return or a golden chariot to ride him back into town without any pomp and circumstance whatsoever, Jesus reenters the world of the living in this quiet and intimate scene with one individual person. I mean, Jesus, I mean, he could have appeared to Pilate or to Herod or the chief priest. And I think that would have been good, right? But no, he came first to Mary because the resurrection for all of its universal significance, it was also about Mary herself for she was standing alone and she was weeping and she was confused. She was wishing that things could be other than they were. She was looking for something or someone who was going to be able to change her world decisively for the better. And then Jesus, out of the grave, appears to her, and he makes himself known to her in one single word, Mary. I love it. He calls her by name. I mean, she didn't know who it was but when, when they were talking, but when he says her name, she knew. And that's how personal God is. I mean, he could have shown himself to somebody who is more worldly significant, but he shows up to this grieving woman alone by the tomb because that's Jesus. And this image of God visiting Mary in the darkest hours really became so clear when Doug Conning called this last Wednesday. And I mean, he was asking for his daughter who wasn't breathing on her own. And then as the reality of her passing became more real, I mean, it was just so powerful to see them in their shock and dismay and confusion do what Mary did. I mean, she turned and looked for God. She looked for Jesus and how they're choosing in the darkness to seek him. Because Jesus will always show up. Now, he doesn't take always take away the pain, but he gives us the ability to walk through it because he has conquered sin and death. And in this passage, um, Mary heard Jesus speak. Now, some of us believe like we just, like we don't hear Jesus like Mary did. But I want you to rethink that because how many times have you stood looking at a sunset or listening to a music or reading a book and you have a thought, and the truth stands out. Or maybe you're with a friend, and they say something, and your heart beats a little quicker, or you get chills a little bit. And somehow, without quite understanding why, you're able to believe that death, no matter how real, no matter how painful, it's not the final word. Or maybe we're like Peter, we went to the tomb, but our ability to believe, to see and experience truth is clouded because we're carrying our sin and shame for the things that we've done. So let's look, what does Mary do? Finally, she recognizes that Jesus is, and she wants to hold on to him tight. And he lets her know he has work yet he has to do. He has to go to the Father. And he tells her that she has a job as well, to go tell the others what she has seen. And if you think about it, in this, this whole gospel story is telescoped in this quiet exchange. God meeting us where we're at with all of our flaws and wounds. God calls us by name and gives us a gift of new life. And then God sends us into the world to tell others what we've seen. And we also see a deeper meaning of the resurrection. We see that the resurrection means so much more than holding on to Jesus and hitching a ride to heaven, right? Resurrection means that we embrace our roles as bearers of this wonderful and amazing news. The truth that nothing can stop God's love, not even death itself. Author Shane Clairbor, he talks about resurrection in a way that really resonates with me. 
He says, for even if the whole world believed in the resurrection, little would change until we began to practice it. We can believe in CPR, but people will remain dead until someone breathes new life into them. And we can tell the world that there's a life after death, but the world really seems to be wondering if there is life before death. So how do we live the truth of the resurrection more fully in our lives? And one way would be to do exactly what Mary did. She lived the resurrection by running back to the 12 and telling them that she saw Jesus in the flesh. This is what God is doing in me. And when Jesus appears to the disciples later that day, one of the disciples isn't there. Remember Thomas. And Thomas, I feel for him. He's always going to be known as the one who said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to disparage Thomas for his lack of belief, but I love how Jesus invites Thomas to prove him to be alive because eight days later, Jesus does come to him. Then he said, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Caravaggio's painting is probably is my favorite one of this scene because I just love how it depicts Jesus inviting Thomas into seeking the truth and that Jesus is really raised from the dead because in this there's no shame, there's no rebuke. Jesus just invites him to come in and say, I am true, I am alive. And as we follow that light red thread from the beginning to the end of John's gospel, we see that this doubting Thomas the cynic, the one holdout of the disciples. He, he is actually the one who responds in full to Jesus' question, whom do you seek? Thomas emphatically says, my Lord, my God. He is the first one to confess in full who Jesus is and how Jesus meets the deepest desires of his heart. Jesus is my truth and he is my everything. So why are you here this morning? What are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Is it God that you're seeking? And what does it look like to really seek God? I find that I can get really off track in seeking God. My life gets really busy. I tend to, you know, rely on my own self to get my needs met. I can fall into seeking that peace and joy in other ways. So I, I realize, I, was, I read this quote, it often, it echoes what I think I can sometimes do. Someone wrote sort of like a poem about the three dollars of God about wanting just enough of God to be comfortable but not wanting to pay the price to really seek or deepen my relationship with him. So let me see how it resonates for you. It says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb and not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Do you really want more than $3 worth of God? I think some days in my life, it doesn't look like it. Seeking God is much more than being saved. It is about being transformed. Seeking God is not about doing all the right things, although developing our spiritual disciplines are a, real, are a good thing. It's about connecting with God and knowing Him. Transformation is more than giving money to the poor or being a moral or nice person. Transformation is where you begin to see the world through God's eyes instead of your own. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you act in response to what you believe he's leading you or showing you. I think sometimes seeking Jesus looks like this. Okay, so pretend that you are late at night driving in a very unfamiliar place. You are lost and confused and you're trying to get your way back to the highway. This is way before GPS, okay? And it's foggy and it's dark and you can hardly see the road in front of you. But just as you are considering pulling off the shoulder, you see some taillights in front of you. 
And this driver, they seem to know what they're doing. They, they take the corridors confidently, even when it's so foggy, because perhaps this driver knows the road. So following this car, it at least keeps you from swerving off the pavement and into the ditch. So with whatever vague sense that you have, of which the highway is, you start to get the sense that this driver might be headed in the same direction. So when you reach your intersection, you are unsure, should I take right or left? But you take a leap of faith and you keep following the car ahead. And sure enough, you see a sign that suggests you're going the right way. And your confidence begins to build. So after a couple more intersections, you decide, I'm going to keep following those taillights. And you have a growing sense that you're going to keep on the road and you're going to get to the place that you want to be. And that's the metaphor that I think that illustrates the, the process of seeking and being transformed that can come when we follow Jesus more. I mean, at first we notice that Jesus seems to know something about what it means to keep your life on track and how to stay on the road. And then we sense that Jesus is going where we wish that our lives were headed, but we don't know the best way to get there. So after a few turns, we see that Jesus also values some of the things, things we do, like relationships and justice and, you know, and, and responsibility and generosity to the poor. And before long, we start to sense that Jesus is headed where we wanted to go all along. And we start to follow him and we trust him that he knows the best way to get there. And yes, there are some puzzling turns and moments where our trust just seems to be put to the test. And we find ourselves asking a few more questions like, will I find my purpose by laying my life down for others? You know, does justice require me to get the short end of the stick in this situation? But over time, our sense, our hunches become a conviction. And bit by bit, we're willing to follow Jesus' counterintuitive ways along the path. And eventually, that path along the road with Jesus, it becomes so valuable and beautiful. We find this deeper sense of joy and fulfillment. It's like when Mary, she gets to this point where she doesn't have any doubt. The arrow of her life points toward Jesus, and that's where we're going. Does the arrow of our life point to him? Seeking God means daily we are consciously choosing to direct our hearts and minds toward him. And as I was thinking about Mary, I was reminded of another seeker, an author, Anne Lamont. Now, she and I, if we had a conversation, we'd probably disagree on some key areas. But I love and am inspired by her passion for Jesus and her thoughts on grace. Her coming to believe in Jesus as her Savior did not come by a leap of faith. It involved several misguided, like, staggers to, to God. So in her story, I can see how Jesus was quietly yet persistently asking her this very question, Anne, whom are you seeking? So I wanted to read part of her story. On the seventh night after my abortion, I discovered that I was bleeding heavily. I thought I should call a doctor, but I was so disgusted that I had gotten so drunk one week after my abortion that I just couldn't wake someone up and ask for help. So I got in bed, shaky and sad and too wild to have another drink or take a sleeping pill. So after a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure that no one was there. And of course there wasn't. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. So I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there watching me with patience and love, and I squeezed my eyes shut, but it didn't help because it wasn't with my eyes that I was seeing him. I finally fell asleep, and in the morning he was gone. 
The experience spooked me so badly, and everywhere I went, I felt as if there was a little cat following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. And when you let a cat in and you feed it a little milk, it's going to stay forever. One week later, I went to church. I was so hungover, I couldn't even stand up for the songs. This time I stayed for the sermon and I thought it was absolutely ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. I felt as though the presence of God was washing over me and I began to cry. I raced home and felt this little cat running along my heels. I opened the door of my house and I stood there for one long minute and I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a deep long deep breath and said out loud all right you can come on in isn't that amazing the ever pursuing tenacious love of god so as we close i would encourage you to have a conversation with jesus letting him ask you these questions and maybe it's today maybe it's going to be tonight or sometime this week and the questions are like whom are you seeking Spend some time looking at, what do I spend my time on? Where do most of my thoughts tend to land? You know, assess how often do I include God in my decisions? And then identify, what is the one thing that I can do to more fully seek God? Now, I would leave you with one last thought that helps me in seeking God. We know that the Bible says that God is always present. He said he would never, ever leave us or forsake us. So how do we seek somebody who's always right there, right? Seeking means that um, we know that regardless of the circumstances, that Jesus really is there for us all the time. And just like Mary, although she didn't recognize him at first, Jesus was present in her deepest and darkest despair. It is impossible to have a situation where God is not present. Therefore, seeking him simply means that in every circumstance, we have another opportunity for you and Jesus to have a conversation about who he wants to be for you in that situation. So the question that you can ask Jesus, Jesus, who do you want to be for me now that you couldn't have been at any other time? Because maybe now he wants to show up as your healer. Maybe he wants to show up as your father or your deliverer or your wisdom. I really encourage, let's go for more than just $3 worth of Jesus. So let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for your over-the-top love for us, the tenacity of which you um, pursue us, the way that you have won everything and that you want to give so much. Lord, we ask that you would give within each one of us a stronger desire, more of a hunger for you that um, we would never, ever let go and that we would live the power of your resurrection, not only for eternity, but in this world. We thank you and we love you so very much. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.